If you have heard about the impeachment hearings, would you raise your hand if you've heard about impeachment? <laughs> oh, you thought I meant the one going on now, right? You didn't really think I was going there, did you? No, I'm talking about the impeachment hearings from 1974, the impeachment of, of uh, Richard Nixon. By the way, as I was saying that and planning to say that this morning, it occurs to me that two weeks in a row I have begun an illustration uh, with an illustration from the 1960s and 1970s. I'm really showing my age here by doing this. Now, back in 1974, there was an impeachment hearing of then-president, as most of you know, uh, Richard Nixon. And um, during that, uh, pro those proceedings or during that trial, uh, one of uh, President Nixon's top aides, uh, a White House attorney, White House counsel, uh, Chuck Colson, uh, pled guilty to obstruction of justice and was sentenced to seven months in prison. Now, just before entering the federal penitentiary, uh, Chuck Colson came to faith in Jesus. And you can read about his conversion in his, uh, his autobiography, which is called uh, Aptly Born Again. In that book, he writes about how he came to faith and how the Lord used his time in prison to uh, redirect, not only had his soul been redirected by his salvation, but to redirect the purpose into which he invested his life. Many of you will be aware that when uh, Colson came out of uh, the penitentiary, he founded in 1976 what has become the largest ministry in the world to uh, prisoners and to their families. It's called Prison Fellowship. Are you familiar with that? Prison, prison Fellowship. Still operates today. Of course, uh, uh, Chuck Colson died a number of years ago, but um, the ministry still operates today. And, and it is a, a wonderful ministry, particularly serving the families of those uh, who were in prison. Did you know that there are more than 2 million men and women incarcerated in the United States right now, about 2.3 million. And Chuck Colson understood what the Bible is clear about, and it's this. It is that God has compassion on the prisoner. If you believe that, say amen. amen. He does. God has compassion on the prisoner. Now, we see this over and over in Scripture, but maybe one of the most beautiful examples of God's compassion for the prisoner is seen in the release of Barabbas on the day that Jesus was arrested and crucified. Now, many of you know the story that uh, there was a tradition during the time of Jesus in, in uh, the Roman Empire that on Passover, the Romans would set a prisoner free. They would offer clemency or give a pardon to one of their prisoners that was being held. And it just so happened that there was a notorious prisoner on the day that Jesus was going to be crucified whose name was Barabbas. And he really became the, the, uh, the antitype or, the, or, or the, the other side, the guilty one going free for the innocent one who was being condemned. You remember Pilate offered to the Jewish nation both Jesus and Barabbas, you can have either one that you would like. I will set a prisoner free. I will crucify one and release the other. And they asked, as you know, for Barabbas. And really, 
I mean, didn't have to happen that way, right? There didn't have to be that tradition. Jesus could have still died and, and, and uh, purchased our soul's redemption without any particular prisoner having been set free on that day. But Barabbas really became the, the prototype, the model for all the rest of us. Our freedom from sin is so beautifully illustrated in God setting that prisoner, Barabbas, free. I just think it's a beautiful example of this fact that God has compassion for the prisoner. Many of you are familiar with Matthew 25. In fact, we talked about it recently where Jesus talks about the judgment of the nations. And in that, in that um, condemnation of the unjust and in his uh, commending of the just in that day, one of the things that identified those who were saved those who were filled with the heart of love that God has for us, as contrasted with those who were not, was the fact that those who were filled with God's love had visited some in prison. I was in prison, he said, and you visited me, or else I was in prison and you didn't visit me. But again, it's, a, it's reflective of the fact that God cares about the prisoner. Listen to Psalm 68 in verse number 6 where the Bible says God settles the solitary of the lonely. God settles the solitary in a home and he leads the prisoners or leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Again, over and over the Bible says that God has compassion on those who are in prison. But some of you might say, but if they're in prison... They're guilty, right? And so don't they deserve what they're getting? That prison presupposes guilt. Now, certainly it's true that there are some exceptions to that, that there are some people who are in prison who are there unjustly or uh, convicted uh, incorrectly. But it's a safe assumption for the most part that those who are in prison are guilty of some crime that landed them there. And so we might say, well, they deserve what they're getting. Well, can we agree together on this fact that guilt does not disqualify us from grace? Amen? In fact, it is the very thing that qualifies us for grace. And the truth of the matter is all of us are guilty, no matter where we reside today, and all of us need the grace of of God. Do you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross and he, he's uh, in the middle of two thieves on either side of him, uh, a, a thief, a criminal is being uh, crucified, receiving their just reward, the, the, the just verdict of their guilt and their ret the retribution for their crimes. And you remember how that one of those uh, uh, criminals was calling out to Jesus saying, get us down from here if you're the son of God. And the other one called out across to, to his counterpart and said, are you not afraid of God? Don't you know that we are getting what we deserve? He wasn't denying his guilt. We are getting what we deserve. But this man is a just man. And you, of course, know that Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. The fact is we're all guilty and we all need God's grace even though, of course, all of us here today are not in prison. Well, maybe that's not a completely true statement. Because the fact of the matter is that the people who are in prison are not only the people 
who are behind bars. Do you agree? The, the people who are enslaved or who are imprisoned or who are bound up are not only those that are identifiable by their jumpsuits or their prison garb or because they're behind a wall. In fact, many people. In fact, it might even be true to say most people are in a prison of some kind. And this is the reason our text today in Isaiah 61 offers such good news, not just to those in prison physically, but to all of us. It's good news for the captives. Let's read it. Only one verse, Isaiah 61 and verse number one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the good tidings or the good news unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now last week we talked about the brokenhearted, that the good news is good news for the brokenhearted. But it's also good news, he says, not only for the brokenhearted, but for the captives. He goes on to say, not only has he sent me to preach the good news and to bind up the brokenhearted, but to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Let's talk about it. Somewhere in your notes, I want you to jot down, we're going to begin by talking about the prisons that hold us. The prisons that hold us. And if you're a note taker, I want you to have your pen handy because I want you to circle some words. We only read one verse today and you'll notice that in that singular verse, in verse number one, three different times the terminology of incarceration is used. I want you to circle them. In verse number one, circle the word captives. Do you see it? To proclaim liberty to the captives. And then circle the word prison, the opening of the prison. And then circle the word bound. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Three words, one verse, all words that speak about different aspects of being incarcerated, being in prison. Now, when he talks about the captive, the word captive means one who is the loser in a battle. It is to say that, that someone engaged in a conflict, they engaged in a battle, and they lost the battle. They were van, uh, vanquished. And as a result of losing the battle, they now have been taken captive. This might be a battle on a battlefield where uh, two nations collide and one is the victor and they take the other nation captive. It might be uh, when a strong person takes captive a weaker person, a, a criminal takes a, a child or takes a, a man takes a woman or, or there's a captive taken because someone loses in that battle. It might be in a court of law. I, I go to court. I go to trial. I lose. The, 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 uh, the evidence is against me, and I'm taken captive, put in uh, shackles and led out of the courtroom. Could be a conflict. Could be a courtroom. But the result is by losing that battle, we are captured, and we are taken into custody. Captive describes the person. Then the word bound 
describes their condition. When the captive is bound, they are then, the word means, securely held. It literally means that the person who is the captive is absolutely, completely incapable of freeing themselves. It's not that if they work really hard or over time or with good behavior or anything like that, they absolutely are incapable of uh, releasing or freeing themselves. So while the word captive describes the person, the word bound describes their condition. And then thirdly, the word prison in verse number one identifies the place where they are held. So the prison is, is actually the, the structure, right? It might be an actual prison with barbed wire and, and uh, uh, Constantine wire at the top of the fences. It might, be, um, it might be a nation, it might be a person, but it's the actual agent or the actual place that is holding the captive, keeping them in lockdown. Captives who are bound in prison. The person, their condition and the place. So we might say it this way. We would say John Smith, to make up a name, John Smith is confined to his cell in solitary confinement at San Quentin for 23 hours a day. We just described the person, the place, and his condition. The person, John Smith, his condition, solitary confinement, 23 hours a day, the place, San Quentin. But how does that person, condition, and place apply to you or me? If we were to insert our name into verse number one, or if we were to insert our name into my illustration for John Smith, where would we say, or what is it that holds us, and how securely bound are we in some form of captivity? What are the prisons that hold us? Well, I would suggest three to you. Certainly there are more than these, but let me suggest three that I think are very um, common. One of these, I would say, is this. Write it down. It would be what uh, many have called generational sin. Generational sin. Now, other people would use a word uh, where they call it generational curse. I don't prefer the word curse because that implies a lack of, in, a, a lack of ability to respond or seek change on my part. It's just a curse that's pronounced upon me. Uh, but I think generational sin is a correct word. I want you to hold your finger in Isaiah. I'm going to take you and show you this all the way back in the book of Exodus. Would you turn there, please? And you're going to go to chapter 20, Exodus 20, where you're going to, to hear... Um, as God is giving to Moses the Ten Commandments. And so look at Exodus 20, beginning in verse number, uh, well, verse 3, you have the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. Here's the second commandment in verse number 4. You shall not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself uh, to them, nor serve them. So the, the second commandment is that you shall make no graven image. In other words, don't go carve an idol out of a piece of wood, something that looks like a man or, a, or an animal, and then bow down to this thing that you made and worship 
uh, in idolatry this icon that you've just created. Thou shalt make no graven image. So that's the second commandment. But now listen to what he says after he gives that commandment uh, in verse number five. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them. Why? For I am the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So he says in verse number five that I will visit upon the children uh, for three or four generations the iniquity of their fathers. Now sometimes people read that and say, well, how how unfair is that? How awful is that that God would bring judgment upon descendants, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, because of the sin of their fathers or of their ancestors. We'll keep reading. Look at verse number six. I also show mercy unto the thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So how do we understand this passage? Well, the first thing to know is this. It is that the issue in verses five and six is that is that God shows mercy far, far more fully than is the result of sin. God's heart is to give mercy to the thousands as opposed to two or three uh, generations or the third or the fourth generation. And the issue in these two verses is those that love me and those that hate me. Now when God says, you, God says when you live in a family, where your father, your grandfathers, your, your, the generations before you, when they love me, that has far-reaching blessing to the coming generations. But when you grow up in a family where they hate me, where they deny me, where they ignore me and reject me, then that has negative consequences in that family as well doesn't mean that God takes the sin of the father and whips the son. In fact, the Bible says in another place, I will not punish your son for the sin that you commit. What the passage is saying is that there are consequences, there are influences that parents pass down to their children. Now, here's the fact, here's the truth. That there are many of us in the room today who are living with the generational sins that have been handed down through Our families, let me tell you what that looks like. For some of us today, the decisions, the choices that we are making today in our generation mirror the bad choices that our fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers made. It's not because we are bound up, we are cursed in it as if we can't get away from it, but it is because the influence, the example of what we were given was this is the way that we live life. It is a generational handing of the baton of a pattern of sin, generational sin. So we make choices that we saw our fathers make. For some, it has to do with the way that we respond to certain situations. Some, I've heard people say this. Some of you might be saying this. Well, the reason I'm the way I am is because, and then we'll say, well, my mother dressed me funny or whatever, right? You know, my mother always acted that way. My father always responded that way. I'm, a, I'm a, an angry person. I, I have a bad temper, I explode, 
Because I saw my father explode every time he got upset. And he saw his father explode every time. It's what we do in our family. You married into this family. You should have known what you were getting. Didn't you ever see my daddy blow up? You understand? That's what we do, right? We, we're handed this generational sin. So we, we make choices based on kind of the generational influence. We, we respond in particular ways because of the way we saw our fathers or others before them even respond. Uh, the lifestyle choices that we make, it mirrors those. It, it might have to do with infidelity. You may have grown up in a home where mom and dad or one or the other just sort of slept around. It's kind of what they did. It's, it was just the way that it was. Or maybe there was a series of, of lovers coming through your home, just one after another. You never quite knew who, was gonna, who you were going to wake up in the morning that were going to be at your breakfast table. That's what you saw. And so very often that becomes the pattern that we begin to follow in our own lives. Sometimes it has to do with poverty. We, we, we're modeled choices that we make that lead to, to poverty, and we continue to make those choices. Well, the point is that there are some of us today who are living in the, in the prison of generational sin. It's what it's the, the prison that was erected around us by the generation that came before us, and now we just keep living in it. Here's a second, write this down, the second prison that far too many of us live in, and that would be the prison of addiction. Addiction. Somebody has uh, said that a biblical understanding of addiction would be to describe it as voluntary slavery. And think about the phrase, voluntary slavery. So we would describe it this way, that voluntary slavery would be where, where we feel guilty and responsible for our actions, and yet at the same time we feel incapable of changing our behaviors. It's a, it's a slavery, but it's voluntary. Uh, we, have, we have chosen it. We are both responsible, but we are... Uh, seemingly incapable. And we could talk a lot about that, and we have a wonderful counseling service that can help you uh, with slavery. I would highly recommend it if you struggle with this. But, but there's, there's a lot uh, to, that we need to understand about uh, the nature of how sin gets a foothold and holds on in addictive behaviors in our lives. A lot of it has to do with idolatry and a lordship issue and, and what I'm replacing the lordship of Christ with in my life. But, but that's not the point of the message. The point of the message today is, is to simply identify that for some of us, we're living in prison to addiction. It might be addiction to alcohol. You may be here today, and here's the truth. The, the truth of the matter is that you are enslaved to a substance. You may admit that. You may know that. You may acknowledge that freely and honestly, and I hope you do if, if that's the case. Maybe you don't acknowledge it at all. But there, there are many, many people, even within the body of Christ, who are enslaved to alcohol. And by the way, can I say something about this? I, I, um, I'm concerned that we are looking at the possibility of an epidemic of alcoholism in the church in a few years because there are such casual attitudes about social drinking, particularly among young millennials, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 
who are just embracing this lifestyle of social drinking and saying within the church, well, I have liberty to do that. And I didn't come today to argue whether or not it's a sin for you to have a glass of wine. But I will tell you this, that the Bible is clear that Proverbs says that wine is a mocker, it is raging, and you better know you're playing with fire. Okay. Now, some of us here are in that playing with fire stage, and some have absolutely been locked in to alcohol addiction. It's true. Maybe it's drug addiction, addictions to prescription drugs or other illicit drugs. And then it might be the drug of pornography. I won't take the time to go into all the statistics. They are absolutely, I started to say absolutely alarming. Alarming doesn't even describe it. The addiction to pornography in our culture and even within the church. The statistics, just a couple of them, go something like this. The statistics tell us that two out of three adult men regularly seek pornography online. Two out of three, 66%. Well above half. And that these statistics are equally true within the church as they are outside of the church. Two out of three men regularly seeking pornography. In terms of our students and teenagers, they tell us that nine out of ten teenage boys have been exposed to pornography. Six out of ten girls, teenage girls, have been exposed to pornography. It's an absolute epidemic. It is absolutely an addiction within our culture. And it's entirely likely, in fact, I would go farther than, it's not just likely, it's absolutely true, I'm certain, that I am speaking to people on both of our campuses today who live in a slave relationship to online pornography. So whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's pornography or anything else, food, many things it could be, but we live enslaved to addictions. Third prison that enslaves us would be satanic lies. Satanic lies. John 8, 44, Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies. And he lies to us. He, he causes us to believe things that are not true. And by the way, one of the reasons that we fall for Satan's lies so readily is because we are so ignorant of the truth too often. We believe what Satan says because we don't know what God says. And the greatest protection against believing the lies of the enemy is to immerse myself in the truths of what God says. And so Satan, Satan feeds us these, these lies that we believe. You know, we always act on the basis of our beliefs. It's true. Let me say it again. We always act on the basis of our beliefs. In other words, the, the formation of my behaviors, the, the, the cultivation of the habits in my life are always growing out of the soil of what I believe to be true. Max Lucado has said, the most important thing about you is your belief system. To change the way a person responds to life, change the way or change what that person 
believes about life. In other words, if I, if I want to live out of, live a life of glory and honor to God, a life of, of uh, spiritual health and, and, and uh, emotional health and relational health, then I've got to believe the right things and, and behave out of those beliefs. So what Satan does is he comes along and he just starts to feed you a line, a bunch of lies that aren't true. We don't know what God's word says about it, so we just take in what he says and we believe it. And by the way, he speaks through a lot of different ways. He speaks through people. He speaks through the culture. He speaks through media. He speaks through entertainment. He speaks a lot of different ways. He speaks through fear. And we believe the lies that he says. Let me tell you two of Satan's primary lies that too many of God's people believe. Here's the first one. Satan tells us the same thing he told Eve in the garden, which is essentially this. God is not good. He's not for you. He's against you. He's mad at you. He's holding you back. Satan tells us that God doesn't love us, that he's not good. So we begin to believe, rather than knowing that the opposite of that is in fact what is the truth, we begin to believe and behave out of a belief system that says, God's obviously angry at me. God's obviously working against me. God's obviously not for me. And and all of our behaviors are driven by by that. Second lie that Satan tells us is, you're damaged goods. You're messed up. You're a freak. You'll never recover. God could never use you. You're such a broken person. You're stuck where you are. You'll never change. These are the ways that he verbalizes this lie, which simply says that we are unredeemable and that our lives are unuseful to God. It's not true. So, Pastor, you don't know. I don't care where you've been. I, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your past looks like. Those things are lies. They are not true. But we believe that those things are true and those lies lock us down in a prison of deceit. So I I could go on with other illustrations or or samples or examples of the prisons that hold us, but it's the prison of generational sin or the prison of addiction or the prison, prison of deceit based on Satan's lies. But go back to Isaiah 61 if you're still in Exodus. Go back to Isaiah 61 listen to what verse number one says again. As you think about the prisons that hold us, Here's the good news. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good tidings and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now, if y'all are listening on both campuses, shout amen. Amen. If I am in a prison formed for me by generations of family lifestyles, or if I am a prison that has come up around me made of of my own addictive behaviors, or if I am in a prison of deceit because I'm believing the lies of Satan, does verse 1 of Isaiah 61 apply to me? Yes or no? Does it apply to me? Absolutely, it applies to me. So is the gospel, is the good news only good news for people outside of the church and in the church we don't get any good news or is the good news for us as well? Praise God, the good news is for us as well. And here it is. This good news of verse number uh, one is the promise. 
It's not the proposal. It's not the possibility of. It is the promise of freedom. That God says to those of us who are bound up, I am promising you freedom. And I love the fact that the promise of freedom in verse number one speaks boldly. It speaks boldly to the problem of imprisonment. Let me just say it this way. Isaiah 61 and verse 1, or the promise of freedom that God makes to us, is not a self-help kind of message. If y'all listen and shout amen. It's not self-help. It's not some kind of backdoor kind of, hey, hang in there, and it can get better over time. It's, it's not that kind of message. It is, are you listening, an audacious full-throated, bold proclamation of freedom that is available to the people of God. It is a promise of freedom. In fact, verse 1 tells us this is why he came. It's the very reason he came was to set us free. Pastor, I'm in bondage. There's generation, I act just like my daddy and granddaddy before him. Jesus came so you could act like your savior, not your daddy. Pastor, I'm I'm enslaved to alcohol. I've put it down a thousand times and I cannot stop drinking. Jesus came to set you free from bondage and addiction to alcohol. Pastor, I can't, I can't open my phone without being drawn to pornography. Jesus came to set you free from the slavery of lust and pornography. Jesus came to set us free. In fact, the Bible says this, doesn't it? Galatians 5 and verse 1, it is for, shout the word, freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus stands at the, at the locked gate. If we could envision San Quentin today, if we're in our own personal Alcatraz or our own personal San Quentin or state penitentiary, you name one, we can envision our own personal prison. We're bound up under the lies of Satan. We're bound up under generational sin. We're bound up under addictions, whatever. And Jesus stands at the gate. He stands outside of our prison. He's not interested. Listen to me. He's not interested in just coming to visit us in prison. Are you listening? He's not interested in coming and sitting outside of your cell and making you feel better. He stands outside of the prison and he has one word of promise that he offers you today. And it is the word, do you see it in verse number one? Liberty. Imagine Jesus standing outside of your own personal prison. You're bound up, been bound up for years. You're locked in, you think it'll never change. And the, and the Son of God, the Messiah, God in the flesh, stands outside your prison and he says, Liberty! Liberty is available. One word will open the doors, will unlock the gates, and we will set you free. When he says in verse number one to proclaim liberty 
to the captives. The word liberty means to be free-flowing or to be like a bird. The idea is this aeronautical word, like a, a bird flowing or floating through the sky, a bird that has been released from its cage. We are set free. We have been given liberty. Earlier, I mentioned Barabbas. Can you imagine? You ever thought of a lot about Barabbas. The Bible tells us he was a, a, a rebel. Uh, he was a murderer. He was a thief. He was a conniver. He had been convicted. The cross upon which Jesus died was the cross that Barabbas would have died upon. And he was, he, he was uh, guilty and would have been executed. And one day... On the morning of his execution, the Roman soldier came, opened the door, unlocked the chains, and said, you're free to go. Now, wait a minute, I'm guilty. What do you mean I'm free to go? You're free to go. But, 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 but I've been convicted. I, I've already, I'm, I'm, I'm mentally ready now. I knew today was my day. I, surely I'm, you're not going to die. Get out of here. But, 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 I'm, but you have to think, shut up and go home. You're free. Imagine the joy of Barabbas being able to walk free and let that joy transfer to your heart. God wants to set us free. I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives. And then thirdly and finally, this scripture promises us that not only does he offer us freedom, but it assures us of the power of Jesus to keep his promise. It assures us of the power of Jesus. I know what some of you are thinking. I, I, I do. You say, well, pastor, it's all well and good to hear that freedom is available. I've heard that my whole life. Those people in my life who love me, my wife or my parents, my husband, whoever, those people at church, they tell me I can be free. But I've, I've tried. I can't get free. It's just the way we are in our family. Just way things are. If I, if I, I've quit a thousand times and I've started a thousand and one. And I can't be free. Did, did you see what the verse says? If y'all believe your Bible, shout amen. amen. I have come. Jesus said the spirit of, Isaiah says it here. Jesus quoted it in, in Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he, the Lord God, has anointed me by his spirit to bring this good news that those who are bound and those who cannot free themselves and those who are taken captive and those who are in prison, they can receive the message and the gift of liberty. Why? Because I am the one who has been anointed. I am the Messiah, the word anointed means. I have been empowered by God. I am God in the flesh and the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Some of you will remember this. You don't have to turn if you don't want to, but I'm going to go to Luke chapter uh, 1 because I, I want to read to you a couple of verses uh, from Luke 1 where in the, in the days following Mary's receiving the announcement that she was going to be um, uh, carrying the Christ child, she went up to visit her cousin Elizabeth in Judea and she spent three months there. But you, you'll remember that when she walked in, <coughs> pardon me, when she walked into uh, Mary's house, 
that John the Baptist, Mary was already six months pregnant with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist leapt within her womb because Jesus had come in. You remember the story? And, and, and uh, Elizabeth says, what an honor, essentially, what an honor it is that the mother of my Lord would come into my home. And Mary's response is what we call the Magnificat. It's, the, it's this celebration of praise. And, and it begins in verse number, um, uh, let's see, Luke chapter 1, it, the Magnificat. Magnificent begins in verse 46, but look at verse 51. In this celebration of praise, Mary says, He has showed strength with his arm. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now and tell him God is strong. Tell him both campuses, God is strong. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats. And he hath exalted them of low degree. Now, she's talking about the promise of the Messiah to come and deliver the people of Israel from bondage. And the bondage they were living in that, in that time was under Roman bondage. And the Romans exercised absolute control over the life of the Israelites. I mean, to the extent that not only were they the reigning power in the region, they were the authoritarians, the authority, the law. But they also exercised control over every aspect of their daily lives. Did you know that if you were an Israelite walking along through your hometown and a Roman soldier stationed in your town was carrying a heavy load, a pack, a burden, he would say to you, if I said to Mike, Mike, carry that for me. Mike would have had no no ability to say, carry your own pack, man. I'm not carrying your stuff. He would have had to have stopped what he was doing, leave his family, pick up that burden because the Roman soldier with the sword could have killed him, executed him on the spot if he refused, and he would have had to have left his family and gone and carried that burden. By the way, that's why we're taught in the scriptures, Jesus said if they tell you to carry it a mile, carry it two miles. But you have to, you have to live under their oppression. If, if, if he wanted you to, to perform any task, you would have to perform it. The point is they were under this mighty, heavy, strong, iron-like rule of the Romans. The Romans were strong and the Israelites were weak. And when the Messiah is coming, when Mary has conceived the Christ child, her praise is this, God is showing his strength to set us free. God is scattering the proud in the imagination of their hearts. God is putting down the mighty from their seats, and God is exalting those of us who have been in captivity to them. Here's the way to say it, that when we are under the bondage of alcoholism, under the bondage of drug addiction, porn addiction, under the bondage of generational sin, or in the prison of our own believing of Satan's lies, those things are strong, but God is stronger. Those things have us feeling weak, but Christ has come to exalt the weak and to break the things that hold us in bondage. Christ came to set you free. In fact, the Bible tells us, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter number 2, that Satan takes us captive at his will. Some of us have been held under the will of Satan for far too long. He takes us captive at his will. But how do we find freedom? How do we, how do we access, how do we receive the promise of freedom? 
that Christ came to offer. Isaiah 61 says he came to proclaim liberty. How do I receive it? 2 Timothy chapter 2 says this, that we must repent and acknowledge the truth. Those two things. Satan takes us captive at his will, but the way that we are recovered or rescued or the walls are broken down and the doors are thrown open and the freedom is available is that we repent and we acknowledge the truth. We repent saying, I agree that I'm in bondage. I agree that this is not normal. I agree that I shouldn't surf the internet for porn every day. I agree that I shouldn't be controlled by a bottle. I'm in agreement that the way my daddy and my granddaddy did things wasn't right. And God, that's not to be who I am. I repent of that. And I accept, I acknowledge, I believe that Jesus came not just to take me to heaven out of a life full of brokenness, but Jesus came to change my brokenness now. He came to set me free. And when we acknowledge the truth and we trust in his power and we surrender ourselves to him, then he sets us free. He puts the body of Christ around us to help us continue to walk in freedom. The Bible says in Isaiah 61 and verse number one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to say to the captives, one word, liberty. Your freedom is available to you. Are you in prison today, seriously? Are you in bondage? Maybe it's a well-known fact to family and friends and and they love you and they're praying for you and struggling with you and trying to help you. Or maybe it's an absolute secret and nobody knows it but you. I want you to know that freedom is available to you. This is the good news. I hope you'll reach out and take it. Let's pray together.